You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Did you go ice fishing this morning? Yes. Yes, and uh, I got... No, I did okay. I got new blades on my pogger, so... The ice is still a little bit thin, so I don't want to go too far out, uh, but it's, uh, it went okay. It's perch. This time of the year, I just go after perch. And most of them are small, so they go back in the water, but I, I did okay. Oh, yeah, that's that's what I've been fishing a few times this winter is perch. It's been a little bit slow, I, I found. It's mm-hmm. not, um, the bite's not really good. We got good ice. We're probably up to about 10, 10 inches now. Oh, no, we, we have barely half so that I feel much. pretty safe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You must be, are you fishing on a pretty big lake? It's called Lake Magog. No, it's not very big, and that's why it freezes before the other ones. Uh, there's some of the bigger lakes near here have been frozen this year. We, we had 14 degrees of rain at Christmas. It was just crazy. So it's um, it's global warming happening, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like average yeah, height. No, that's, uh, that's good. I, I was... No, I was going to say average high for this time of the year. I was thinking of going out this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I went. Yeah, I was going to go out this morning as well. And, and then I was like, you know, by the time I get out there and then I got to be back for the podcast and stuff, it was like, I don't want it to stress me out. So I'll go I'll go later this afternoon and this evening. So. Cool. Um, well, it's good that you got a, got a few fish to cook up. New Year's. Um. Hey everybody, it's uh, Mark Hall here, your host. And Curtis Hall, co-host. And uh, here's our first podcast for 2021. Uh, Happy New Year's to everyone. Um, We're joined today by Dr. Marco Festa Bianchet. Um, He's a professor at the Department of Biology. Is that correct? Yes, University of Sherbrooke. University of Sherbrooke in Quebec. Mm-hmm. So uh, in France, in, in, in French, Université de Sherbrooke? Université de Sherbrooke. Is that correct? Right. Okay. And Quebec is always like Quebec, isn't it, in, in French? It's Quebec. Like more of a, of a K than a Q. Quebec, yeah. yep. Quebec. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's our uh, first podcast out of Quebec. Yeah. No, we're excited about that. So, um, so Marco, you've been, you do, you do a lot of different research, uh, part of your time, part of your year, uh, at least the last little bit that I've followed you on social media, you've been down in Australia. Is that correct? Yes. We started working on kangaroos, uh, 13 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And do you take a sabbatical when you go down there or is it, is it just, part of a research trip well it's i've taken three sabbaticals in australia uh but uh except for this year of course we go every year to continue the research uh it's very similar to what i'm doing with mountain angulate it's based on monitoring marked individuals and uh so we started 13 years ago and uh i have had a number of students who've gone down there and done masters and phds and uh this year, luckily, I was able to hire somebody local because there was no way we could go. And so uh, she managed to catch about 40 roos and get some good data on survival and reproduction. So hopefully we can go back next year, but who knows? 
Yeah, because of the whole travel restrictions with the pandemic. So yeah, there is no way. No, to, it's yeah. it's pretty cool. It, it it's neat watching when when you post stuff about the about the kangaroo research and stuff, just because it's so different uh you know than what than what we see with north american wildlife species and even just some of the dynamics and stuff it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting so yeah it's completely but different uh, now yeah okay for now it's uh um you know unless they end up getting introduced into north america it's uh, all your no your all your knowledge and research is being uh, uh transferred to to australia i assume well, one of the reasons why we started working with kangaroos is because they got this very uh, different uh, maternal uh, care strategy. So the mother is completely in control from, you know, after this very short gestation. And so it's very interesting to compare with our work with bacon sheep, mountain goat, and caribou because whenever things go south, the mother can just pop the young out of the pouch and forget about it and try again next year. So it's not just wow, for kangaroos. Yeah, that's, that, that is Okay. Yeah. There's some, some transferable learnings there. Interesting. Mm -hmm. huh. Well, we're, um, we're interested in drilling down today on your, uh, your research in Alberta on uh, Rocky mountain bighorn sheep. Um, and it's the relationship of horn size and evolution and, and hunting. So I think that's going to be of, you know, great interest to, to our listeners today. To kind of set the stage on all of this, I just kind of wanted to sort of back up and talk a little bit about mountain sheep uh, as a species in North America. Maybe give us a little bit of context of the North American mountain sheep, when they got here, how they got their species, that sort of thing. Right. So wild sheep originate probably from Central Asia, like essentially all mountain ungulates. And they probably made it to North America on the Bering Land Bridge, so through uh, Siberia and Alaska, probably a few hundred thousand years ago, six, seven hundred thousand. Uh, so they've been here for a long time. Uh, during the last glaciation, it is very likely there was a group that was left north of the glacier in what is now Alaska and the Yukon, and a group to the south. And that is likely how the two species that we have now uh, in North America originated what we call thin horn, so doll or stone sheep and bighorn uh, for the south. So there's two species. Uh, there's multiple varieties. Clearly the thin horn, there's the dark one that we refer to as stone sheep and the white ones, doll sheep. And actually the genetic uh, investigation reveals those two subspecies are actually quite different. Of course, they can hybridize like all subspecies. Further south, uh, the subspecific classifications are a bit complicated and uh, not everybody agrees. And, uh, you know, subspecies kind of a fluid taxonomic category anyway. But clearly, there's some pretty major difference between bacon sheep in the desert and bacon sheep in the Rockies. For example, in the Rockies, there is a very, very short breeding season. All the lambs are born within two or three weeks in the spring. In the desert, there's a population where lambs can be born essentially year round. But essentially, we got those two groups of sheep. And in terms of conservation, uh, clearly the big problem for bighorns is pneumonia, pneumonia brought in by uh, domestic sheep. And that is likely why the range of wild sheep, in particularly in the States, not so much in Canada, is much smaller than it used to be. And of course, uh, 
organization like the Washi Foundation have reintroduced them in a bunch of places and it has often worked. In other cases, not so much because it's just incompatible with domestic sheep. Yeah, yeah, no, I th- I think, um, you know, most listeners are pretty familiar with the pneumonia thing um, in British Columbia. There's a lot of testing um, that goes on. The Wild Sheep Society BC's involved a lot in that and same, same over in Alberta. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, when we, t- when we think about wild sheep in North America, just like the two species. Um, and, and I find this really fascinating, but the bighorn and the doll are two species, correct? Where the, where the doll sheep, the white and the gray stone sheep are subspecies. Yes, correct. So, yeah. They, and, and I've, no, I was going to say they, they integrate, go you know, they got what they call the fanning sheep, which is kind of an intermediate, uh, uh, you know, kind of light gray, uh, to population of stone sheep that are almost black and then the pure white doll sheep, uh, so it's a classic case of one species that is two subspecies, and of course, subspecies can interbreed. Yes. Yeah, and depending on where you look, uh, there's definitely a lot of differences in in the literature on on the subspecies of the bighorn. It seems to me most people agree right now on on the three: uh, the Rocky Mountain, the desert, and the Sierra Nevada. Is that kind of maybe the state of agreement? Yeah, yeah, no, that that sums it up. Uh, you know, of course, they're the ones that used to be considered California bighorn sheep or interior bighorn sheep, which are clearly a bit different. It, you know, at that point, it doesn't really matter whether you call the subspecies or not. I think the importance is the recognition that they've got some ecological characteristics that are different, and it's probably not a very good idea to mix them up. Uh, a lot of the time, these differences are not, you know, they're just in the phenotype. Uh, they're not really genetic differences. But yeah, the, the essentially those three groups. Yeah. And and some very isolated populations down in the United States, like in the Baja. And now the Audubon yeah. sheep was a was a bighorn that went extinct, that, that it was a, it was its own subspecies, correct? And then it went extinct. Well, whether or not it was a subspecies, I don't think we really know that. Uh, they clearly went way out in some of the canyons in the Dakotas and uh, uh, you know Montana. There were certainly places where there's no sheep now. Whether they were really a different subspecies or it's sort of like you know growing up in a different environment, it might have looked a bit different, but uh, really there was not there wasn't that much in the way of genetic difference. Uh, they were clearly adapted to a very different environment. Uh, but it becomes, uh, you know, all these questions about subspecies, uh, you know, they're useful at sometimes, other times they're kind of, you know, they're based on very, very little knowledge, especially things like, you know, the Audubon Brigorn is a classic example. First, Europeans, they got to Western North America, saw the sheep, they thought they looked a little bit different. A lot of the time was, you know, early hunters would like to say, I shot one of these and I shot one of those, where there really was something different. Uh, I don't think we can tell. Well, that's where that whole philosophy and science and conservation comes in about lumpers and splitters, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a huge problem oh, for the, um, for some other groups. 
Yeah, well, there's definitely the whole aspect of hunting, um, you know, and especially in the wild sheep hunting world, um, you know, where people are, have all these um, grand slams and North American slams and world slams and all this kind of stuff. So splitting seems to be very popular, you know, differentiating, you know, uh, the California bighorns from the Rocky Mountains and, you know, and all this, all this kind of stuff. Cause I guess it's just a uh, quote unquote more trophies on the wall and recognition if they uh, accept the, the subspecies. However, California is not recognized by, by, by some outside of British Columbia. So uh, in, in that world anyways, that hunting world. So now you've been researching Rocky Mountain bighorns in Alberta in the Rockies for on on like the Ram Mountain area you call it um, for a long time now like you're over forty years. Yeah, I uh, started working when I was barely out of my undergrad. I started working at a place called Sheep River in southern Alberta in 1981. So yeah, I've been coming up to almost forty years. Uh, of course, Ram Mountain. Uh, Ram Mountain is an isolated population, uh, sort of east of Red Deer, east of Rocky Mountain House. And it's an isolated mountain off the main uh, range of the Rocky Mountains. And work uh, there, well, Alberta Fish and Wildlife started doing some monitoring in the late 60s, but the study really started in 1971. Of course, in 1971, I was uh, 12 years old and I wasn't involved. Uh, but uh, it really started um, because people wanted to know, can we have a non-trophy season of bighorn sheep? And the main motivation behind having a non-trophy, so essentially a use season, it goes back to pneumonia that we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. And in those years, people really thought that the risk of pneumonia increased with population density. So the reason why they wanted to bring in a non-trophy season was, you know, can we keep density below carrying capacity and uh, maybe reduce the risk of pneumonia? And if we're going to do that, well, what is the sustainable harvest of female bighorn sheep? And what happens to the orphans? So really the study was set up to simulate a non-trophy season, a, a, a use season. So for about nine or 10 years, biologists remove adult hues. And given that the whole population was marked, uh, this became this incredible manipulation of population density, which has then given us information, all kinds of other things. Uh, but it also showed that uh, when you have a growing population, you actually can remove a fairly large, uh, fairly high proportion of females. And in terms of the orphans, um, if the mothers are removed in September, October, there is really very, very little consequence. Uh, there's no effect on survival. There is a slight effect on males. So, Male lambs that have been orphaned, by the time they're four or five years old, they'll have horns that are slightly smaller. So there is a reason why they keep being nursed until, you know, October, November. But that's how the study started out. And then in 1981, the removal stopped and the population grew. Uh, in fact, the number of ewes uh, tripled. And I really got involved after I got the job in Sherbrooke. Uh, so I've been involved with Ram Mountain since 1991, so about 30 years now. And since then, uh, it's mostly involved in monitoring of individual survival, reproductive success, and essentially ecology and evolution. And what makes it an incredible study area is the fact that everybody's smart. Everybody's smart, and we now have a 
fairly deep pedigree in some cases. We have a pedigree that goes back eight to nine generations, which allows us to do uh, quantitative genetics, which is fairly uh, unusual for a wild angular population. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a long, long study. Um, I'm sure lots of, uh, lots of different types of research been, been done there by different researchers, master students, PhD students, like all, all kinds of stuff probably spun out of that, that whole research project, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, so effects of changes in density, uh, a lot on female reproductive strategy, cost of reproduction, you know, you have a lamb this year, does it affect your survival and, and reproduction the following year? Effect of having a son or a daughter, uh, turns out in bacon sheep, male lambs are more expensive for the mother than female lambs. Uh, we've done some work with uh, the effect of cougar predation. Uh, sometimes I wish we had avoided that, but we've had a number of uh, episodes of very intense uh, cougar predation, which really caused a decline in the population. And partly because of that, uh, we've seen increased inbreeding. We, it's kind of ironic, a population that started out being uh, studied by removing animals. In the last uh, decades or so, we've also had to reintroduce some animals somewhere else, which has given us the opportunity of looking at things like genetic rescue and the impact of uh, uh, genetic variability on survival and, and especially uh, reproduction. So it's been mostly population dynamics. So and, yeah. So when you say genetic rescue, um, is that as straightforward as what it is? It's it's bringing in genetics that are different than than sort of the local group and introducing new new genes into an area, or or is it actually bringing in genetic characteristics that have been lost out of a population? Well, in this case, you mean. Uh, well, the official definition is exactly like you said, bringing in additional genetic variability that compensates for a loss of genetic variability in the population. And in this case, because we're down to such low number, uh, we knew that there was an increasing problem with inbreeding. So we were able to show, for example, that inbred uh, lambs at a lower survival. And we can do this because we have a pedigree. We know who the mother is, who the father is, who the grandparents are. And uh, it wasn't a matter of bringing in specific genetic characters was more of a matter of bringing in additional genetic variability. And uh, as in many of these genetic rescue initially, it looked like it worked. And then in the last couple of years, things have sort of started to go south again. So the answer to that is still, uh, the jury's still out. Uh, but the idea was that because the population is mostly isolated, uh, we brought in a few sheep from outside to increase the genetic variability. So what kind of numbers were you getting down to where the the idea of bringing in, introducing sheep was sort of a necessity? What sort of herd numbers? It was down to about 40 individuals. So the population peaked at okay. a little over 200, and then numbers started coming down. And uh, it was one of these strange things that happened with field work in uh, the late 90s. We fully expected that you know it would bounce back up. So about 1997, we actually took out another 14 ewes uh, from the population. We were still at you know 80 breeding ewes at that point, so it didn't seem to be much. And uh, within weeks of us taking those sheep out, the first cougar episode started. Forty years later, we're down to 40 sheep, 17 breeding ewes, and at that level, 
uh, we could see that inbreeding was uh, was becoming a problem. Uh, one of the things that we found out is that during the mating season, uh, they don't seem to be aware. They don't have what we call an incest taboo, uh, possibly because in most herds, you know, they don't need to be worried about it because there's enough. Uh, but it went through several years stagnation. Uh, you know, 40 animals in total, and it just wasn't recovering. Lambs were born really late. The ones that were inbred are very low survival. And uh, so we decided to bring in some sheep from outside. The number that we brought in and actually bred uh, is really not that many. You're looking at maybe seven or eight individuals that actually contributed uh, because, you know, other things that you learn. The first year we brought in some adults. Most of those took off. And then we brought in some lambs, some 10-month-old lambs which stayed, but then of course you have to wait a few years before they start breeding and some of those died. So in the end, it was not very many of the ones that we brought in that actually contributed uh, to the population, but the offspring of those outbred pairs uh, were generally doing better. They were heavier, they had better survival. Things were looking well. And then the last couple of years, something that I don't know what it is, I suspect it's another cougar predation episode that's happened. So this spring we're down to 35, you know, we're up to 93, uh, individuals three years ago so things are looking good and now we're back to 35 so we're sort of back to square one so it's not looking too great for the short term well now are are rams traveling long distances in into that area during the breeding season um because you know part of uh you know i guess genetic variability in sheep is that rams are known to like travel great distances to get to breeding grounds yes and that is a very important aspect of uh, uh bacon sheep the the breeding system uh that comes into play uh you know there's an important role in management and interestingly we, we found the same with mountain goats but uh yes rams will leave their natal area and go as far as you know up to 80 90 kilometers away mostly looking for places where uh, there's less competition and more use. So one thing that, uh, one working hypothesis that we have is that uh, this is why you get so many rams coming out of the national parks, going into the hunted areas, because clearly the level of competition is lower. Ram Mountain is isolated. So there is another mountain called Shanda, which is just across the North Saskatchewan River. And there's a small group of sheep there. So probably most of the rams that are not from our uh, uh, from the Ram Mountain population come from there. Uh, the main Rocky Mountain range is about 30 kilometers away. Whether there's rams across 30 kilometers of you know coniferous forest to come to a mountain, I, I doubt it. But with the genetic uh, diagnostics, we can tell uh, in some years up to a third of the lambs are fathered by rams that are coming from somewhere else. So every single male on the mountain is uh, sampled and genotyped. So that if they sire a lamb, we know it. And yet, uh, in, in some years, you know, 100% of the lambs, we know who the father is. But then there's other years uh, where uh, clearly some rams are coming in from somewhere else because the lambs do not have the genetic characteristic of any male in the population. And when that happens, we can typically identify similarities among these lambs of unknown fathers. And it looks like in most years is between one and three fairly successful rams that come in from somewhere else. And those rams are there only for the rut. And this is very typical of bighorn sheep. You get rams come in, spend the rut, and then they go back to their to their native uh, native range. So you get 
genetic dispersal, but you don't get demographic dispersal. So the rams will stay where they were born most of the year, but they'll go and breed in another population. And as I said, we, we see exactly the same with mountain goats and, and in fact with alpine ibex. So it seems to be a mountain angular type of thing. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard stories here in the Rocky Mountains of southern British Columbia about um, rams coming out of um, Waterton National Park, because uh, I guess decades and decades ago, they were marking rams in the National Park in, in Waterton, I think, as a like an anti-poaching type kind of thing. And, and they would show up um, in places like near where we live, um, you know, guys out hunting and stuff in the late season, like you said, sort of known rutting grounds and all of a sudden just a ram that nobody had ever seen before shows up and a few stories, you know, kind of passed on by the generations of, of people seeing sheep that, that they knew were, uh, had marked horns from, from Waterton National Park. So, and then same thing, they would disappear and, hopefully make their way back before winter set in. So, you know, that, that would have, that would have, you know, that journey, if, you know, if you were to look at it on a map, they're, they're actually crossing like valleys, valley bottoms through coniferous forest, you know, getting from mountain range to, to mountain range. So whether or not it's true, uh, I don't know, but that's kind of a, kind of a local thing around here about, uh, about sheep travel and, you know, out of the, out of the national park and, yeah, no, they, they definitely do that. And, you know, with GPS collar, we can see that most of what they do is they'll actually fold the ridges. And like I said, we documented them going 80, 90 kilometers away. Uh, it's funny that you talk about Waterton because for many years, you could tell a Waterton ram because they would uh, follow the asphalt machine to lick the salt. And they would actually have bitumen in the rams, which I guess identifies them as Alberta rams. They got bitumen in their horns. But that's how people knew they were coming from Waterton. No, that's just the color of the horn? No, it's actual asphalt bitumen. They would rub against the machine and they would get this black guck stuck to their horns. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, the the, the tar. Yeah, so we, yeah. you know, in the Elk Valley in southern BC, um, a lot of the rams live around the coal mines or in yeah. parts of the Rocky Mountains with, with the coal formations and they have very, very dark black, dark chocolate mm -hmm. brown horns, which are very characteristic of of the same thing sort of getting in and rubbing around in the coal so never never seen one with pavement stuck on them so uh um so now uh, let's look specifically kind of at the work that you've been involved in uh on ram mountain that's looking at the the effects of the hunting season uh in alberta in that area uh on on what you've discovered on on ram horn size um, and sort of the, 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 what you're seeing as far as evolutionary trends towards sheep horn sizes and what the impact of that is on the population. Right. So we've been able to do this because we have a pedigree. So the technique that we use is pretty much the same as what people with domestic animals would use to uh, select for you know, dairy cows that produce more milk, dogs that are more aggressive, a sheep that produce better wool or whatever. And uh, what we found is that after about three or four uh, generations, so 20, 30 years of very, very intense uh, 
uh, trophy hunting, uh, the horns were genetically smaller. Now, with this technique, we can account for environmental variation, which is obviously the bulk of it. Uh, so when the population tripled, obviously ram horns became smaller because there were fewer resources. But rams, uh, horns have a strong genetic component, which is not surprising. It's typical of any almost any mammalian, mammalian uh, physical trait. Uh, you know, heritability is about 30, 40%. Uh, you get the same if you look at, you know, weight, uh, uh, height uh, of any kind of uh, mammal, which is less than the variability that's caused by uh, environment. And that is something that I often find very, very difficult to explain because people quite properly point out, well, you know, horns are affected by density, by nutrition, by all kinds of other variables. And that's all very true. But once you account for those other variables, you can still find the genetic uh, the genetic basis, which you can do if you have a pedigree. Uh, so the decline that seemed to be attributable to genetic over these three or four generations is somewhere in the order of maybe two to three centimeters, which again is not very which is not very much, and you wouldn't expect it to be very much. But when you have a definition of a legal ram, which is pretty much based on horn length, uh, two or three centimeters make a difference whether you get shot when you're five or whether you survive another year. So what really is a key to understanding why this evolution is very likely to take place with mountain sheep is that if you have, if a ram has big horns, those big horns are not going to help him very much when he's four or five or six years of age because he's going to be subordinate to all the rams. So the big horns play a role when they get to be seven, seven, eight, uh, more like a mature ram, because then that makes it between a dominant ram and a subordinate ram. The problem is when you have a definition like the four-fifth of a curl that is used in Alberta, that ram with rapidly growing horns becomes legal when it's four. So the negative selective pressure of developing large horns comes in two to three years before the positive selective pressure. Another way of saying it is large horns in a hunter population, they're good if you get to be seven, but they're bad by the time you're four. And with the kind of hunting pressure that we had around mountain where the population was hunted, uh, the harvest rate of legal rams was about 40%, meaning that if the horns were legal, close to half of those will get shot during the hunting season. With that kind of hunting pressure, if your horns are legal when you're four, your chances of making it to rut as a seven-year-old is about 8%. So we're looking at a huge selective pressure. And this is something that's really important for people to understand that, uh, you know, because people say, well, we're only shooting 2% of the population. How can that have an effect? The key is what is the probability of getting shot if your horns are legal? And what we had in that population was about 40%. So it makes a, a selective pressure that is actually very similar to that that you may find in, uh, in domestic animals. And uh, uh, so with sheep, you really got this perfect storm of a definition of a legal ram that's based on morphology, along the horns are. It, it's more complicated than that. Four-fifths of a curl has a, it, it dependent on horn shape, but essentially is mostly affected by the length. There's no quota. Anybody in Alberta can buy a license. So the only thing that limits the harvest is the availability of legal rams. And the season is very long. 
why is the season very long being a problem? Well, not so much for a mountain, but for the rest of the province, the fact that people can hunt until the end of October means that they're taking an unknown proportion of these rams that can be gathered in national parks. So the genetic rescue that we talked about earlier, to some extent, cannot happen because some of these rams that are coming out of the parks are getting shot. And clearly something else that we should do next, and I'm trying to work on that, is find out well, when are these rams coming out? Because clearly some are coming out after the hunting season closes. But if you look at the pattern of uh, ram harvest in Alberta, in most of the province, you see this very, very strong, well, obviously there's a peak in the first few days of the season. You know, People get out and they get the new crop of legal rams. But then the peak in the last five days of October in central Alberta is actually higher than uh, the peak in the first week of the season. And that second peak, if you look at where rams are getting shot, they're about 20% closer to the border of national parks. So the average rams get shot about three kilometers closer to a national park late in the season than the rest of the season. And once you account for age, those rams are bigger. So uh, a six-year-old that gets shot away from the park late in the season is a bit smaller than a six-year-old that gets shot near a park. Again, not a huge difference, two to three centimeters. In fact, more like one or two centimeters, very similar to the genetic effect that we found at Era Mountain, which suggests that some of these rams are getting shot near park boundaries are actually park rams that are coming out looking for breeding opportunities. So that would increase the chance of an evolutionary uh, of an evolutionary change. Wow. Um, yeah, that's a very, very complicated um, mm-hmm. sort of combination of human imposed hunting seasons and demand and interest in, in hunting with the actual sort of biology of this, this species. And they're, they're very, sheep are very complex in that whole social structure. You know, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say more complex than other ungulates, but I mean, maybe they are, um, that the whole dominant subordinate, um, thing seems to be very, very strong behavior traits in, in bighorn sheep. Like I've even seen, you know, in, in deer, my, my understanding is like, you know, you'll have dominant boxer and elk or moose or whatever. And they, their job is to kind of keep the young ones in the population from breeding however my understanding is if young ones get a chance to breed they will and and in some places in north america young young deer or whatever do it actually uh, you know a fair amount of the breeding i know here in the southern rocky mountains of bc young mule deer actually do a tremendous amount of the breeding um, as opposed to the big mature bucks um, but i've seen stuff with bighorn sheep where Given the opportunity of a big ram's not around, he's occupied, the ewes won't let those subordinate rams at them. Is right. That, is that well, a fair yes. kind of assessment or is that, a, is that an anomaly? No, th- there's two things I like to say here. One is that all these other species that you mentioned, the reality is we have almost no data on who the fathers are. We have data from what they behave like. And so, for example, for white-tailed deer, the little bit of data on paternity that's coming out does suggest that antler size plays a very limited role, which is surprising, interesting. But if you look for actual data on paternity on moose, 
you only find them in one island in Norway that is very, very heavily hunted. If you look for paternity on mule deer, as far as I know, there's nothing. There's a little bit of whitetail uh, because of another study that I was involved with. We have it for mountain goats. But most of our ungulates, we actually know squat about male reproductive success. We think we know because we look at the behavior and we say, oh, that butt ran in there. He must have bred that doe. But, you know, what really happens, uh, you know, look at all the passerine, you know, the small birds that are monogamous. Until we started looking with DNA, everybody thought, well, you know, father and mother, it's a nice monogamous couple. When people started looking at DNA, they found there's all kinds of anky-panky going on. And a lot of the time, the birds in the nest, uh, you know, the male that's feeding them is not the father of any of them. So with sheep, what they happens- call, you, That's why they call it the birds and the bees. <laughs> yeah, well- I was just saying, That's what they call it, the birds and the bees, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you find surprises when you, look at, uh, when you look at DNA. Uh, so when you have an Easter suit during the rut, a big dominant male will defend her. And everybody else will try, all the other rams will try to isolate that you take her away from the ram and mate with her uh, while she's running off. 60% of the time, the dominant male is the father of the lamb, which means that 40% of the time, the father of the lamb is one of the smaller subordinate males. The key is that for the dominant, the main uh, uh, tactic of you know the big ram you know eight nine years old with big horns it's important for him to have large horns because that's what makes him dominant the other guys are just trying to run after the you and essentially made with her on the run how big their horns are makes almost no difference because at that point is you know how quick you are how much you're willing to take risk are you faster are you lucky so a key part of this puzzle is that horn size has got very little to do with how much you'll succeed in breeding until you get to be at least seven years of age. And that is why if a hunter that shoots a very large horned five-year-old has shot a ram that would have done better, would have done well in breeding if it made it to seven, but up to that age, he may not have done any better than a ram with smaller horns. Uh, so that's another key ingredient of why Bacon sheep seems to be more susceptible to this evolutionary change. But the other thing that I really want to point out is that for all of the other species, we don't have the information. And I'm sure that once we get it, uh, we'll have some surprises. You know, the, what I mentioned for white-tailed deer, it really surprised me to find that antler size plays a very limited role on how well they do. So there's lots of things that we don't know. And if you look at mountain goat, horn size makes no difference. It's uh, how big they are. So for a mountain goat belly, it's important to be big, uh, not so much for big horns. Oh, bo body size, big mass. Mm -hmm. So when, there, there's one thing here, and I've, I've always sort of caught, you know, sort of caught this as, as terminology uh, in, in the Alberta case. Um, there, the four fifth rule. So, so the horn is is four fifth of a curl, which is still quite a ways uh, away from uh, other jurisdictions that use a full curl or thin horn uh, sheep in the north that have over the over the bridge of the nose or the or the full curl, um, true full curl definition up in in Alaska. Um, it it's kind of based on my understanding that full curl 
is is based on that biological timing that if the ram let's just stick with bighorns if if a bighorn is full curl uh, so the the curls coming up to the bottom of the eye socket, you know, you know, which is which is a common definition. It's a ram that's about eight years of age. That that sort of seems to be kind of like I don't know, more like a rule of thumb that kind of that, that I know of, anyways, in the sheep hunting world, and and so the proportion of rams that are that are that age and that size that are eligible to be harvested under a full curl restriction is, is, is not as many. And, and so is that, is that not causing that, that selective pressure, like a four fifth curl is in, in, yes. in the Ram mountain situation. Yes. Uh, because I mean, we could discuss curl and age, uh, forever. There's a lot of variability, but you're right. Generally, if the horns are bigger, the Ram is older. And generally, if you had a harvest, regardless of what you're going to regulate it, and what's getting shot are rams eight years of age and older, there probably will be no evolutionary evolutionary change. Uh, the evolutionary pressure will be very, very weak. So, for example, if you compare temporal trends in horn size in most of the U.S. and Alberta, you find that in most of the U.S., horn size is stable, in Alberta is declining. The key issue is the age at which these rams are getting shot and the combination of age and the minimum horn size. So with the four-fifth curl regulation, it means that the ram in Alberta can be shot at age four. And if you look at the harvest statistics from the late 80s in the province of Alberta, regularly a quarter, in some years almost a third of what was getting shot was rams that were age four and five. Now, remember, you need to get to rat as a seven-year-old for those horns to play a positive role. And these are not just random four- and five-year-olds. They're four- and five-year-olds with exceptionally well-developed horns. Because if your legal definition is, let's say, four-fifths of a curl, and you have an average ram, it'll probably fit that definition when he's six. But if you have a very promising ram, it'll be legal when he's four. In my lifetime, I've seen two rams that were legal four-fifths at age three. If you look at one of the main changes in the harvest in Alberta is that that proportion of four and five-year-old, which in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, you know, regularly 20, some years 30%, is now consistently at less than 10%. Uh, in most years recently, it's been the order of 6 to 8%. And that is not because guys are passing up, you know, young rams. It's because those four and five-year-olds are no longer legal. So what we found at Ram Mountain is not restricted to a mountain. Obviously, we don't have the genetic data for all the province, but the changes we're seeing in the phenotype and in the age of the rams that are being harvested are very consistent with an evolutionary change. Uh, four and five-year-olds are more or less disappearing from the harvest. If you account for age, uh, the rams are smaller. Not a lot. Again, one, two, three centimeters, but once you take age into account, six-year-olds are smaller. The ones that get shot late in the season coming out of the national park tend to be a little bit bigger. So there is multiple lines of evidence that point to the fact that the evolutionary change that we've seen in the mountain has probably taken place in most of the province of Alberta, with the possible exception of the northern part of the province where uh, the harvest rate is much lower. And in particular, you don't have the second peak late in the season, probably because the access is, uh, is more difficult. If you look at data for Rocky Mountain Bighorn Sheep from British Columbia, 
at least the last time that we looked at it, and we're about to do it again, uh, in the Rockies where they're hunted under full curl, there has been no detectable decline. The interior ones where they're hunted under three quarters in general have been, have been getting smaller. So again, you see the effect of different hunting regulations uh, and you get the same with stone sheep. So uh, when we looked at stone sheep in British Columbia, there is the area of the peas, which has a much higher hunting pressure than the skina. And stone sheep rams in the peas area have been getting smaller, in the skina they have not. So again, this is not just Ramount. Ramount is the only place where we have genetic data, but there is a number of places where you look at the combination of uh, the harvest statistics and uh, the size of the horns. If you have a very, very heavy harvest based on a criterion of morphology, you will eventually induce an evolutionary change. And so we also know how to avoid it. So for example, if you look at most jurisdictions in the States, uh, there's really no evidence that this is happening, but they're shooting mostly eight and nine year olds. Under a, a full curl restriction or um, a permit permit type system where, where the harvest level is very tightly controlled. Yes. One of the issues in Alberta is clearly is the fact that there is no quota. Now that is a very difficult issue to deal with because you know, the main constituency that supports sheep conservation is sheep hunters. And in the province of Alberta, people are used to the fact that just go and buy a license and go hunt sheep. So if you wanted to have an impact on the harvest and go to a draw, it would probably require, you know, there's about 3,000 people, I think, now that buy a permit every year. Probably less than one in 10 would be able to buy a permit. And that would really, you know, lose a constituency of people that are out there defending wild sheep. I think that a combination of moving to full curl and shortening the season would probably lower the harvest pressure. Uh, if you move to full curl, you add about on average one and a half years to the lifespan of the ram. It means instead of getting shot as a five year or six year old, it gets shot as a seven or eight. And if you stop the hunting season in the middle of uh, in uh, in the in early October, rather than the end of October, you may get these sheep that come out of the national parks, uh, surviving and breeding in the hunted area, providing some genetic rescue. Uh, there's no way out of it. You cannot fix this problem while keeping the level of harvest uh, that we have now. So it becomes, you know, like everything else in wild management, it becomes a question of people management. I personally think that going to a draw, uh, given the situation in Alberta, would be very, very difficult. Uh, you know, in the States and parts of BC where people are used to it, all, well, it's been like that for generations. That's just how it is. Um, nobody in Alberta would, would ask for an open season on progon antelope because they're used to it. It's on a draw. But things that have been for, you know, decades, you just buy a license over the counter, it, it becomes very difficult to change that, especially because, you know, the success rate in Alberta this, this lately has been in the order of 4%. So it's less than a person in 20 who buys a license who will actually get a sheep. If you go to a draw, obviously success is going to go up because a lot of the reason why success is so low is because people are going to find uh, legal rams. So, you know, if you went to a draw and gave out half as many permits as would have been sold now, it would make no difference. Just make half of the people unhappy. But the same number of sheep will get shot. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where the whole debate comes in about 
you know, uh, harvest rate, harvest success versus opportunity. And, you know, there's, you know, those out there in the hunting world that maintain protecting opportunity is important. They don't have to get a sheep, but they like to go hunt sheep every year. Um, they see them, they don't get one. Maybe it's been 10 years since they got one. They just like to know they can go out each year, go yeah. in the high country and glass the mountains, you know, and hunt sheep. So that, that's the part that would, would disappear that sort of way of life what they're accustomed to, to buying an over the counter tag in Alberta is just, just being able to freely go sheep hunt. Cause you hear all these stories like down in the Missouri breaks in Montana, you know, where they, they have these, you know, phenomenal habitat and grow these really, you know, ginormous rams. Um, but you hear people talking about like one in 35 year type statistics to draw, to draw a permit there once in a lifetime or, you know, people that have been, applying for 40 or 50 years and never drawn a permit there. So that, that definitely scares, scares people, uh, probably in, in Alberta. I imagine that probably that sort of stuff scares people, uh, when you start talking about a draw system for, for bighorn sheep. Um, yeah, that's, that's super fascinating stuff. So if, if this intensive selective pressure, um, I guess it's not an if, um, you're published in the literature. Um, it's, it's factual in the long run. If this hunting pressure under an open season with four fifth curl and a long season is like you said, over generations causing sheep to evolve, to have smaller horns. Cause that's buying them time to get to breeding. What is, or what will be the long-term impact to the population, to the species as a whole, if males actually just have smaller horns? I don't know. Is it going to be a decrease? Okay. You don't know. Well, uh, you know, I'm just thinking, are, are the ewes going to be like, there's no good looking males left in the, like nobody's got big horns, you know, what the heck we don't want to want to breed with any of you is, you know, it's what, yeah, I said I don't know because I don't know, but I'm a professor, so I can speculate. Uh, the key issue here is <laughs> okay. uh, the key issue here is what we call the genetic correlation between ram horn size and uh, characteristics of the whole population. So we have evidence that we have this genetic correlation between ram horn size and things like the size of lambs, uh, their breath success of the use. These are very weak correlations, but the potential problem is that the genes that control for large horn size could be correlated with other traits in the population that may affect population dynamics. Now, remember I said, I don't know. That is a worry. We are working on collecting more data, see what is the actual evidence for it. Uh, but I think, you know, as a hunter over the short term, I'd be more worried about, you know, we want to hunt that is sustainable. And we've always looked at, ecologically sustainable hunt. You know, we don't want to take too many because the population, we want to keep the population at a certain level. I think we really need to think in terms of evolutionarily uh, sustainable uh, hunting. So that would be my first uh, preoccupation. In terms of what's going to happen if nothing changes, well, we're seeing it in Alberta. Four and five-year-olds are not legal. Maybe we're going to soon start seeing six-year-olds. Fewer of those are going to become, uh, you know, fewer of those are going to be legal. And... Uh, you know, over the next few generations, uh, the impact of an evolutionary change of two or three centimeters on population dynamics 
It's probably nothing, uh, but again, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I always, I always can't help but imagine, you know, humans have been hunting wildlife all over the world for hundreds of thousands of years. And in some cases, I think hunting was pretty intensive, even in ancient, ancient peoples. And it's like, what, what do we have now that we're used to, um, as a, as a species, their morphology, their horn size, all, all that's, that's actually an artifact of evolutionary effect of, of ancient hunters. I, I, you know, with mountain sheep, I kind of think about the old world sheep, um, and even the domestic ones, uh, like the Marco Polos and, you know, and those, those type of sheep that just got these enormous, like big animals, but enormous horns, like unbelievable curls. And, and then you get into, you know, our North American sheep, the big horns, and even you know, like, I think the snow sheep and stuff in, in Russia, and they, they don't have that same big corks corkscrew type horn system and i wonder if there's some artifact of the influence of humans in that well in that particular case i i personally doubt it uh, but there is one of the okay. reasons why i was happy to do this work with bacon sheep is because i think it stimulated other people to look for similar things in other species and it turns out that we probably have had some evolutionary impact on a lot of wild species i worked with people that worked on brown bears in sweden and this is the same species as a grizzly bear. And they behave, you know, you, you wouldn't believe it's the same animal. They start breeding earlier. They've got larger litters. They've got much shorter interlitter interval. All things that fit with a population of bears that's been persecuted by people for centuries. And they probably evolved to be more like a squirrel. You know, they're much less aggressive. They're more nocturnal. Um, all things that fit with the idea that, you know, our main thing is not to get shot or killed by, by some human. There is work now on species of plants that people use for food or for medicine that uh, have become more cryptic, more difficult to find uh, in places where they're heavily harvested. So, yeah, and, uh, you know, of course, lots of data on fishes breeding earlier at the smallest size when they're very, very heavily, uh, heavily overfished. So, yeah, it's something that I think we should think about uh, more in terms of what is the evolutionary impact of humans uh, on many species, not just the ones that are... Uh, that are hunted because uh, there's probably more there than what we uh, uh, than what we think. So I think it's a very uh, I, I think it's a very interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I certainly appreciate like your your research being like an example to to force people to think about you know where this is happening uh, you know elsewhere. And ever since I've sort of learned about your research and the evolutionary impacts of, of that season in Alberta. Um, I do think a lot about that, like, you know, in other species and, and especially situations where, where the, the harvest restriction is really narrowing down to a very specific segment of the population with males that are, that are horn size. I, I just, I'm much more like aware of that now, you know, when I'm looking at things and, and I'm, I'm wondering like, you know, I'm, uh, is, is this happening here? And like you said, we don't know, nobody, nobody knows cause nobody's collecting, you know, in, information on that. As an example here where we live in, in the Kootenays of Southern BC, like our elk population um, is down like significantly. And 
we have a hunting season that's based on a six point bull. So mature bulls, um, and they're being hunted during the breeding season. So the harvest is very specifically focused on, you know, a, a very specific segment of that population. So, um, the harvest is not very high. Um, success rate is quite low because the population is low, but, but it's making me think, um, and having these conversations to get people thinking about intensive selective hunting pressure, I think is kind of the language or terminology around the, the, the Alberta case. And, and that's, that's what I see value in, in, in opening people's eyes to that, that situation of intensive selective pressure. Yeah. And I've done, you know, literature surveys. And one thing that really comes out very clear is so far, there is absolutely no evidence of this kind of evolutionary change uh, for any species of deer. Uh, even though there is regulations on, you know, uh, minimum uh, number of tines, uh, minimum antler size. Uh, in some cases, it may be because the appropriate data don't exist. You know, people don't tend to have pedigrees. But uh, there's a lot of work in North America done with the you know, with quality deer hunting, with the impact of, uh, uh, you know, minimum number of times. And uh, they find that there is selection. So, you know, if you need to have a fork uh, two times to be shot, well, spike do better. But in terms of evolutionary change, uh, there's really no evidence. Uh, I always find it kind of interesting when people bring up elk because there has been work on red deer in, in Europe. And in unhunted population, your typical breeding red deer stag is, you know, eight to ten, eight to eleven years old. Uh, you know, find me an eight-year-old bull elk in most hunted population in North America. They essentially don't exist uh, because even with a with a limit of four, even six, uh, six uh, points, uh, you know, you can easily have a four or five-year-old that's got six points. The key is also how much of that is genetic. And deer, it may be more affected by environment because they regrow their antlers every year. Uh, so that may be why this evidence of evolutionary change tends to be in wild species, bacon sheep, uh, stone sheep, and there's some more from European mouflon. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense um, for sure. Now there was some work just came out recently I think I think I might have even seen it from you about um, this concept applying to mountain goat populations in southeastern Alaska, um, where like very small populations, very isolated populations, and sort of the whole concept of of um, you know mature male harvest um, not being detrimental to goat populations, where the research was kind of talking about that it, it may, I, and I'm not, I can't remember, I, I don't know if you remember the research I'm talking about, whether it was actually talking about, you know, one or two mature billies out of those populations because they're so small can be detriment to the long-term growth of the population or whether they were actually coming at it from the same concept of evolutionary change in those small goat populations. Yeah, these are the goat population in the panhandle of Alaska, which are very sought after because they're enormous, you know, they're really big goats, but they're very small population. And uh, the issue that the paper raised was uh, goats are very, very sensitive. And one of the problem is that, uh, you know, inevitably there's some female harvest. 
So with this very small population, you end up with uh, an increased probability of inbreeding and then also some of the removal of, uh, uh, of the odd female. So they found that if, I forget exactly what it was, but something like if there's less than 50 or 60 individuals in the population, you essentially cannot hunt them uh, because you cannot guarantee that people are only going to take males. And, uh, uh, you know, the breeding is done mostly by these males that are, say, 80 years of age and older. And in a population like that, there may be only one or two. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, the Ram Mountain research um, that, that we've been that we've been talking about here uh, in the hunting community in North America. Let's just put it at that. It, it, it am I fair to say it hasn't been well received? Um, it seems in the popular literature, outdoor sports writers, you know that that sort of thing. Um, traditionally have kind of tried to find ways to to discount it um i've seen an article i think i sent you there a couple weeks ago a fairly recent one just out of the states that at least seem to acknowledge um the intensive selective hunting pressure causing evolutionary change in bighorns in in alberta but i don't know there just sort of seems to be some stuff out there whether it's in the wildlife management agencies as well, that like, do they not want to believe this? Uh, do you get a lot of criticism from the hunting community about this? Yes, less than I used to. Uh, of course, when the idea first came out, yeah, a lot of people reacted, well, how can this be? Because they would think, uh, you know, we got a population of sheep, we shoot less than 2%. How can there be selection? Before people started realizing, well, we may be taking less than 2% of the population, but if you're a legal ram, your chance of getting shot maybe over 40%. And that actually one set of information, one kind of data that we have very, very little on. Uh, you know, what is the harvest rate of legal rams in different populations? And uh, from the information that we're getting come, starting to come out of Alberta and places like the Yukon, where essentially the ram comes in to be registered and people try to guess, you know, how long had the sheep been legal before they got shot? And it's becoming pretty clear that in many of these places, the ra- harvest rate for legal ram is well over 50%. So it's extremely high. Uh, then the other reaction, the other reason why there was a, uh, a negative reaction was uh, because this was immediately taken up by the anti-hunting press, uh, the anti-hunting organization to show, to say, oh, you know, here is evidence this is happening everywhere. And it's happening with elephants and with lions and with deer. And so it's a disaster which is clearly not true. And that's why I try to put a lot of emphasis into saying, you know, we have no evidence that this is happening for any species of deer. But it really played into the essentially anti-hunting sentiment. So, you know, hunting is under attack from a number of places these days. So there was a bit of a circling of the wagons and that was sort of inevitable. Uh, The attitude has changed. Uh, For example, wildlife biologists in Alberta initially were very skeptical. Uh, Right now, I think I can confidently say that all the provincial wildlife biologists are on board, that yes, this is a problem. Yes, we need to do uh, something about. Uh, There's still some opposition from sort of the older generation, the old style that, you know, all hunting is good. Uh, You know, the old hunting philosophy, getting shot is good for you, which I don't particularly subscribe to. Uh, But uh, a lot of the opposition, again, comes from people that don't realize just how liberal the hunting season is 
in Alberta and really most of Canada. Uh, you know, you mentioned before, uh, there's places in the States where, uh, you know, you, if you start applying when you're 16 and you apply until you die, you may never get drawn for a RAM. Uh, RAMs are getting shot are typically eight, nine, uh, nine years of age and older. And so there's probably no, no evolutionary problem. Uh, so I think some of the opposition came from a lack of understanding. Some of it came from just, you know, a gut reaction of, oh, here's another attack on hunting. And uh, uh, it's it's certainly becoming less and less. And uh, particularly when you start seeing paper com- papers coming out comparing, you know, broad scale investigation of what's happening in the States and comparing it to Alberta and showing that in the States in general, age and uh, horn size of rams are getting shot in various jurisdictions is more or less stable in Alberta is declining. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very unpopular with some of these hunter groups, but uh, less, and le- less and less so, and certainly the ones that I managed to get to talk to. For, for example, I was very pleased to talk to the meeting of the BC Wildlife Federation a couple of years ago and explain uh, some of this uh, uh, research. You also get to tend to get, you know, the noisier ones, the ones that write articles and uh, shout the loudest, may not like me, but I get a lot of people that come and talk to me and say, well, you know, really, I, I, I think you're right. Clearly, you know, in a situation of very high hunting pressure, it's very difficult for a hunter to say, oh, well, you know, that's a five-year-old, I'll pass him up, because chances are somebody else is going to shoot him probably in the same day. So it's... Uh, Unfortunately, unless you have a regulation that levels a playing field, it's um, it's just going to continue. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can see how I've seen this with other things. You know how the anti-hunting community would would pick up on this because you know they're scanning, they're looking for anything mm-hmm. that shows hunting in a negative light, and the Ram Mountain research seems in some cases what i've seen is it seems to be lumped into this whole um debate about quote unquote trophy hunting which is mostly tied to you know like africa that seems to be the big the big thing where uh, people pick up on that uh where the argument is that the focus of trophy hunting being on the biggest and oldest of the males of the population with the largest headgear, the largest body size is driving evolutionary changes in the species. Uh, elephants are, you know, they're not going to have tusks and, you know, uh, you know, these, these sorts of things. And my understanding is like your research where you're talking about intensive selective pressure on young bighorn rams that are trying to get to breeding period with bighorns um, versus the trophy hunting situation, which is selectively taken off like the biggest and the oldest of animals out of a, out of a population. Like those aren't necessarily like, you're not talking apples and apples there. Like there's different things going on from, uh, from an evolutionary um, implication. Is that correct? Yes, pretty much. Uh, The key is uh, you don't want to harvest the promising animal before he gets the chance to breed. And also the level of harvest. Uh, if okay. you have another situation where you have very, very intense uh, harvest of large horn males before they can breed, you probably get the same uh, result. But you can see how difficult this is to explain to an informed hunting public. Imagine when 
anti-hunting organization use this data to sell it to people that, you know, that's what they want to hear. I spent a lot of my time trying to promote what we can call conservation hunting. I'm very interested in the conservation of mountain ungulate in Asia. And there, there's a real opportunity to protect habitat of these wild sheep and goats by using this very, very limited, uh, let's call it sport hunting, uh, I mean, trophy hunting. I wish we could come up with another word. You know, places where people want to go in. And, uh, <laughs> me, me, me too. Yeah. yeah. You know, in some cases, it's got to be ridiculous. People are paying 110000 to go in and shoot a marker in places where $110,000 can really go uh, a long way. So there's ways to incorporate this in a conservation uh, program. But, you know, then they come up with a picture of a fat slob with a dead lion. Well, you're screwed. Uh, you know, the imagery is just so powerful that, uh, you know, the a couple of trumps with the tail of an elephant. Uh, you know, go back to square one. Uh, it, it, it's hard because yeah, totally. It, it, yeah. And, and I think in the hunting community too, like that, that's, that's a challenge in having conversations like this about wildlife science. That's, that, that has a, a, an aspect of hunting that's being investigated in, in the research is, you know, the hunting, the hunting community is bombarded by, you know, these, these campaigns. Um, so every time a piece of, and, and some of the anti-hunting organizations are sort of like quote unquote doing their own science and, and, you know, and publishing in, you know, sort of obscure journals and stuff and, and, you know, getting to claim, you know, peer review and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So they're trying to come at it from the, from the objective information sort of, sort of angle. Um, but you know, there's obviously a, a, an advocacy component behind, you know, some of that research. And, and so I, there's definitely a hypersensitivity in the hunting community as soon as you come out with something and it's sort of like, whoa. Um, and it, it's unfortunate because it takes a lot more effort on your part as a scientist. Um, cause obviously if there's going to be change, you know, in hunting and wildlife management for, for the better of, of, um, sustainable harvest, like that's where the conversation needs to be. You need to get buy-in from the hunting community to change, you know, the way it does things and to advocate to governments to change regulations. But when there's this sensitivity of, of their immediate reaction is just like, okay, there's something wrong with this research. Cause it seems to like have a critical component on, on the way hunting's done. And then you've got this, this period of time where you kind of have to, you know, battle to, to get people to accept, uh, you know, the facts and realize that, you know, there's a benefit, um, you know, to the future of hunting, uh, you know, if, if the science is used to change the way management management's done. So I don't know if we can get out of that cycle of, you know, being sensitive and, 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 and sort of being skeptical of, you know, of research that comes out like this. But in my opinion, that's one of the things we're trying to do on this podcast is to give people information about research, like, like you're doing, let you explain it. Uh, and then people hear for themselves going, oh, okay, <laughs> this guy, this guy in Quebec is not trying to, you know, put an end to bighorn sheep hunting in the Rocky mountains. Um, he, he's, he's, you know, he's speaking a different language. So that's, um, that's one of the values. That's why I want, we wanted to have you on the show. So that's, that's cool. About a year and a half ago, there was an article came out in the United States, uh, from one of the big popular hunting media brands down there. And 
um, they were trying to tackle this whole topic about whether hunting was causing evolutionary changes and leading to smaller horn size and stuff. And uh, it it talked about Uram Mountain research, uh, but then it kind of went right on to just sort of discredit it, uh, coming at it from the angle of of um, well, as the as the outdoor writer, I spoke to some wildlife biologists, you know, down in Arizona and New Mexico or something like that. And they're like, no, that, that research up in Alberta, it's just like, it's an isolated case. It's not reflective. And you know, that our research shows we still get Boone and Crockett rams and you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And I, I wrote that, that author and I said, you know, I, I think you're misrepresenting Marco's work and here's his contact information. Like, why don't you get a hold of him and ask him to explain what your research is actually saying? Cause I, like I said, I think you're misrepresenting it. And, um, I, I was a little bit shocked, but like the person wrote back and basically kind of said, you know, a scientist can, can publish their work and, and say what it means, but they have no control over how their science gets used. So basically he wrote this article that cited all of this different stuff that said hunting is not causing evolutionary changes in antler size. Here's this one research that was acknowledged, but then discredited it because he said other wildlife biologists kind of don't think it's, it's, it's applicable to, to wildlife management and didn't want to actually talk to you or dig into it to, to, to hear what you just told us on this podcast. So I was a little bit shocked, you know, by, you know, the objectivity of the outdoor writer, um, you know, sort of discounting peer reviewed mm -hmm. research that's saying, Hey folks, you need to kind of look at these types of things in hunting. And, and like you said, maybe look where, where it might, might be happening that, that we're not aware of. So um, I'm sure that's happened more than once by more than more than one sports writer but it, it almost seems like they're they're too protective of hunting they just don't want anything out there to like sort of like you know criticize the establishment yeah no, that's certainly a problem and you know as we discussed it has been used by anti-hunting groups uh, so uh but it's uh this business of, you know, it only happens in a mountain, that's kind of going away finally. People are realizing, oh, it's happening in much of uh, much of Canada. Uh, but it is true. I mean, you just have to look at the age of rams that are getting shot. And, uh, you know, uh, Norwest territories, mostly 10, 11 years old. Uh, many of the states, eight, nine years of age, so much lower. Uh, you know, those rams have had the chance to breed before they get shot which is not the case uh, in a lot of Canada. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's definitely fascinating, fascinating research that's going on there. And, and I'm hoping that as you continue the, you know, the conversation with wildlife managers in, in Alberta and the hunting community and stuff that, um, you know, there, there can be some, you know, I guess maybe some changes, you know, coming in the future, some pilot projects even, um, and, you know, and even what we were talking about earlier, kind of like what hunters want out of hunting, you know, opportunity versus, 
you know, mm-hmm. versus, um, you know, a certain success rate. Um, as you know, that kind of the whole social science side of, of wildlife management and hunting can kind of kick in here. Um, like here's, here's the, you know, the biology and, you know, what, what's happening with the current season, but, um, there are ways to kind of like blend, um, you know, the two together, the types of hunting experiences that sheep hunters in Alberta want with, um, you know, with the biology, you know, and, and the science that's, that's happening there. So, so I'm hoping, you know, that in Alberta, they're having, you know, good conversations with the hunting community to sort of say like, you know, what do you want? Do you want a draw system? Do you want to try a draw system? Do you want to have a shorter open season? Do you want to go to a full curl? Like those types of discussions so that everybody's involved. Yeah, no. And, and, and those discussions are happening. Uh, because like I said, it's essential that this doesn't come as an imposition from above because otherwise it's not going to work. Yeah. No. And sometimes I think, man, if, if there's anybody from the United States listening to the podcast, they probably look at some of these things up here in Canada and they're just sort of like, you guys are on a general open season over the counter for like cheap. And it's like, yeah, I mean, most of British Columbia is like that. Alberta is like that. And it's like, um, we even have places in British Columbia, um, not a lot, but in, in the north, there's areas where uh, mountain goats are on a general open season. Um, they're very they're harder to get to, like geographically, yeah. so the, the access into it is not as, as good. But um, most, you know, uh, these types of things down in the United States, I think they're probably just shocked that uh, we got pretty liberal, liberal seasons, but um, clearly... Clearly, time is catching up to to Canada in some yeah. of these cases. And, you know, what we can counter, we don't have this enormously powerful domestic sheep lobby that insists on putting domestic sheep in bacon sheep range like they do in much of the state. So, uh, you know, we've actually got more natural sheep than further south, uh, even though that is changing over time. Yeah. Marco, this has been a really interesting podcast to launch into 2021 um, with. Um, our listeners love love learning. They love educating themselves. Um, I'm really happy you came on the show and and explained your research in you know pretty pretty straightforward language. I think it's the way you put it. It's pretty easy for most hunters who are are pretty educated in um, biology, ecology things to, to grasp what you're saying and at least see where the, see where the path is, where the solutions are, you know, that you're pointing, pointing out some options of, of, um, a compromise and a path forward. I think, I think people will see that. So thank you. No, I, yeah, I, was, I really, really enjoy Oh, thanks, Curry. No, I, I really appreciate it because I know it's extremely important that, you know, if this research is going to have to have a positive input on management, it's important to speak to hunters. And, uh, I know that, you know, if they're reading things like the Alberta Outdoors Man or some of these blogs and, uh, you know, they probably think I'm either Voldemort or the devil. So it's important that they realize, <laughs> that, realize that I'm not. So I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Now, what's, um, you know, pandemic aside, what's what's your future goals um, for research on Ram Ram Mountain? Um, you, you mentioned a few things that you kind of want to start digging into a bit more data. What what's your wish list for Bighorn Sheep Research? 
Well, I mean, you know, the wish list is the key issue is uh, disease. And I'm not really involved in disease research now, but if, you know, that that is clearly, uh, I mean, in, in a way we know the solution is we need to separate domestic sheep from uh, wild sheep. Uh, the other big thing that's coming up is what, what are going to be the effect of climate change. For an animal that lives on the mountain, you know, it can move up a little bit, but eventually the mountain stops. And there's real concern coming out of some studies in Europe uh, with things like uh, chamois and uh, to a lesser extent ibex that uh, climate change is having an impact. I would really like to get more uh, uh, more data on uh, these movements in and out of the protected areas because I know some of these rams are coming out later in November, and I'm trying to set this up for uh, you know with national parks to get some GPS callers out on on some rams. And uh, well, Ram Mountain right now numbers are low, and I'm just hoping that the population will recover to a point where we can look at how long it takes to uh, recover from this evolutionary change in uh, in uh, in horn size. And more generally, you know, something we touched upon, I, I think it's really important that we get some actual data on distribution reproductive success of male ungulates. Uh, because, you know, who knows? Maybe in some cases we confirm uh, what we thought from just looking at them. And in some cases, it may not. Uh, you know, red deer, when they start looking at molecular evidence, they found that unless you're defending a harem, you just get zero reproductive success. Roe deer, something completely different. Uh, so it'd be nice to get more data on, on that. Uh. Yeah, definitely. Cause, uh, similarities in all those species, but, um, the nuances between them and how, how they're reacting to different types of, of selective hunting pressure is, mm-hmm. I, I guess, still a big, big question like you're pointing out. So, um, the age-old question: Data need need more data in wildlife management, and you need more funding available to do research to get the data to help us um, fine-tune, change, adapt uh, our hunting seasons to for the long term. So this this is here for the future of all Canadians, and that's why you know you hear us and others always talking about the importance of funding in wildlife management because. Funding gives us science and gives us answers to to questions and ultimately, um, you know, better hunting seasons, better better wildlife management, better habitat management. So, I don't think there's a researcher out there that that uh, box at more funding for for wildlife research. So, yeah, more more questions and time and money to answer it. Right. Well, Marco. Um, Thanks very much uh, for yeah, coming on and uh, good luck with your perch fishing. Uh, <laughs> hope your ice gets a little bit thicker so you're not so so sketched out when you go out there. Uh, stay safe. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, man. No, thanks, guys. A pleasure. Um, hey, everybody. Um, yeah, so episode, uh, the first one of 2021, uh, looking at a uh, excited with everything that's coming up uh, in the new year. So kind of a, a call to action here for new hunters, uh, people just starting out and hunting, interested in getting hunting, maybe 2021 is going to be the year that you want to get into hunting. Um, maybe it seems scary. You got lots of questions, uncertainties, you need some help sorting some things out, uh, get a hold of us here at the Hunter Conservationist. Go on to the website, thehunterconservationist.com. Submit us some questions, find Curtis 
or I on uh, Instagram, uh, shoot us some questions. Uh, we're really looking for you to tell us um, how we can help you in 2021 um, be more successful in filling your freezer with with uh, wild game, getting started in hunting, getting started in something that you haven't hunted before, like waterfowl, snowshoe hare, you know, whatever. So um, sheep. Yeah, sheep. Yep. Don't 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 take the small ones. Pass pass them up and take take the big ones, and that'll make make Marco happy. So, um, but on that, um, get involved. Uh, get involved. Uh, educate yourselves. Uh, you know about uh, about issues. Um, find Marco's research uh, on the internet. Educate yourself a bit more about it. Um, educate your MLAs about what you know this type of stuff means, and and work with your wildlife managers. I think that's hunters have always done that, and that's important to carry on uh, in 2021. But, uh, aside from that, uh, you got questions, you want help, you want support, um, in hunting and fishing, let us know. Anything else, Curtis? No, I think that just about covers it. I mean, we love, love hearing from all the fans and love answering the questions and it's good to have all that, uh, the engagement from you listeners. So we love, uh, we love questions, comments, all that stuff. Make sure you fire them our way. Right on. All right, everybody, we will see you in the next episode.